What's up, everybody? This is Emmett. Welcome to Exhaust. Welcome, Exhaust patrons. Sorry we were late this month and getting things. It is still moldageddon at my apartment, but it is slightly more livable. And so I'm here with Canada Mike, and we are going to discuss the second to last chapter in the True and Only Heaven, which is entitled The Politics of the Civilized Minority. How's it going, Mike? Good. I'm excited for this one. Apologies again to the listeners for the third rate John impression, but you know, I'll do do my best here. Yeah, this was this was a really interesting chapter, especially now for me. You know, I mentioned mm-hmm. in the episode that we did about the Agamemnon pandemic book mm-hmm. that I was starting to just feel like, okay, yeah, this like this COVID thing is really just like obviously becoming a platform for class war and you know i think in in canada that's recently just kind of like busted out into the open and it's completely obvious now and this chapter and it looks like probably the next chapter as well speak directly to what's going on and i I, it's pretty rare for me to say you know if you want to understand something that's going on in canada you should look at american history but uh, this is definitely a case where where you ought to because the going liberal ideology is absolutely what lash is discussing in this chapter yeah i mean mike and i were talking before we hit record that this is this chapter it's one of the long it's the second to longest chapter in the book it is a bravura performance from lash Yep. It is his major broadside against how liberalism changes, aided and abetted by Marxists and technocrats, basically, like actual bureaucrats who are writing books into something of both a style and a psychotherapeutic politics that is basically against the grain of most conceptions of human tradition. And he does that very, very handily. I want to say that when I was reading this, I was thinking about the structure of this book a lot. And maybe that's because I've been listening to the new thinkery. And so all these, these Straussians talking about these books is making me like count my chapters and think about where things fall and the holistic whole of what's arguing. And what we've gotten for the most part in this book are specific themes and thinkers semi-chronologically that Lash wants to look at in terms of who was criticizing progress and how. Over the course of this chapter, it was not lost on me that all of these people that we talk about are proponents of progress. And I was wondering why that was. And it becomes clear at the end of the chapter, and we'll get to this in the discussion of the JFK assassination, what it is. And I'll, I'll just say that the reason why it comes here in the book, why this is a tee up for what's going to be probably lashes, like why I'm voting for Pat Buchanan in the 1992 presidential elections <laughs> chapter at the end yeah, of the right. book, because <laughs> 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 um, this comes out in 91. Before it gets that, it is also him building on the chapter before this, which if you don't remember is the chapter on MLK. So go back and listen to that because that's going to be really helpful here. Because the thing that I didn't say um, that I wish I had in the MLK episode is the reason why he wants to take a look at MLK's more, frankly, conservative religious commitments. We could say just more traditional religious commitments and how much those inflected his moral positions on things is that he said, how is it that the people who 
like had the least to believe the, the fewest amount of reasons to believe in progress black americans right basically left out of the national narrative and trajectory for a very long time intentionally managed to achieve what many would consider such great progress at moments of the civil rights movement however curtailed or troubled that was which last document documents without ever believing in progress themselves why is that how did that happen and right. this chapter you come to really see progress as a substantively elite frankly like new england like wasp ideology and then yeah. eventually professional managerial class ideology that was far more interested in having LBJ and JFK as its champions than what Lash closes the chapter with the real hero of the 60s, which was Martin Luther King. Yep. Yep. And and that all of this, you know. And that they're stealing fucking valor. <laughs> That's yeah. the other thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For real, for real. And and you know, that the sort of progressive views on race and, you know, the Black American problem or the, what is it, the American dilemma, mm -hmm. how it's phrased. The um, American dilemma, yeah. The American dilemma are purely discursive, right? And had no material effect on the lives of Black Americans until actual Black radicals like started doing things that these people could not ignore. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and that none of that discourse was directed toward black people. In any no, way. a lot of it was like whites are going to have to do it for them. Basically, yeah. Was yeah. The, was the, the thing, especially that guy who writes the American dilemma. Yeah. So Lash wants to begin with sort of the opening of World War One. And this is really sort of like when the progressive era starts to diminish. We've talked about that before in this book, the pervasive cynicism that sweeps over everyone. People like Mencken rise to the top on that with this ironic detachment, et cetera, et cetera. But there are elements of the progressive era that exists. And in fact, the research I've been doing on the utility industry, it's very true. You know, like the reason Samuel Insull is convincing in terms of the regulated monopoly over socializing electricity is that progressives are basically like, well, the market just needs us to run it. Right. As bureaucrats who sort of shepherd things the right way. You know, we don't want public ownership and we don't want the horrors of laissez-faire. Right. You know, and, and, and that's what's going on here. Right. But one thing that Lash starts to notice is that there is a growing critique of America and its people that assumes the person imbibing the critique is in a different class or intellectual category as the common American citizen. Yeah. Right. In other words, I've written about this before many years ago in an article called Lecture Porn, The Vulgar Art of Liberal Narcissism. And basically Lash wants to point out that it is people like H.L. Mencken who are the pioneers of this style of thinking, which I think we see everywhere around us today. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess uh, 
the I'm trying to find. Here we go. So he's taking a look at this this uh, collection of essays about the different states that a lot of these people write. I think for New Republic or something like that. It's like a special issue. And I mean, it's a who's who of liberal uh, or, or, or of literary talent. You know, the guy who writes Winesburg, Ohio, shits on Ohio. It's like everybody takes their turn shitting on a state. There are a few essays that are exempted from this. There are essays on Vermont and New Mexico that aren't so quick to decry American backwardness. But <clears throat> this, is, uh, this is how Lash summarizes this, which I think gives us a good flavor, sort of what he sees out of this shift in liberalism. He says, taken as a whole, these reports conveyed an unmistakable impression of liberal intellectual sense of alienation from America. It was not that the country had failed to keep faith, as Crowley wrote in 1922 with its original idea of the United States as a promised land. The nation's contributors seldom invoked the original idea of America. Most of them wrote as if the promise of American life had been a swindle from the beginning. Where have we heard that before? <laughs> Crowley's brand of social criticism implied that whatever democracy Americans managed to achieve in the future would have to rest on their achievements in the past. The author, authors of, and this is the name of the collection, <clears throat> these United States assumed, on the other hand, that breaking from the past was the precondition of cultural and political advance. That Americans refused to make the break proved the country's backwardness and immaturity, its hatred of intellectual and artistic freedom, its fear of new ideas, its intolerance of anything that called the old ways into question, its puritanical obsession with sexual purity, and worst of all, its suspicion of intellectuals. Since liberals retained at least a formal allegiance to the idea of democracy, they tended to regard its shortcomings with indignation rather than with Mencken's ironic detachment. They shared his contempt for the majority, however. As they understood it, democracy meant progress, intellectual emancipation, and personal freedom, not popular self-government. Self-government, it appeared, was incompatible with progress. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sound familiar? 